Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Alec, Alec G. I'm from uh, Cold Lake, Alberta. I'm a... Uh, that's what I am, tribally. I see some of you guys, I'm not sure if they're just turning red face because of, uh, of uh, anger or something, you know. But sometimes we flash our wonderful color, you know, in public place like this. Because when we drink, we always love to put on a, an act, right? Actors, you know. Too bad we never made a Hollywood. <laughs> but some of us might have. I'm very honored to be here today. Um, I'm an alcoholic. I drank as much as I could. And every time I drank quite a bit more than I should, I became an instant white man. I start bragging, start big plans, and I started looking at white woman. And uh, I don't know if that qualifies me as an alcoholic, <laughs> but that's what had happened. I'm here because I took that first drink. And uh, I was at college, in the art college, and uh, it was Christmas time. And artists, uh, they drink like fish, you know. And we're a little bit on the crazy side of society. So we just love to show our fangs every once in a while, you know. And uh, this one time, about the second year, you know, a nice lady, a nice woman, sat beside me and started talking. I had a heck of a time to even respond, you know. I liked her, but I didn't know how to proceed, you know, to anything that would be connecting as a conversation. Anyway, after I had a few drinks of this, uh, Canadian club, they call it. Uh, it's it's a fire water, they call it in Indian language. That thing just burned me right down, you know, throat and down. And I thought I was going to die. Uh, well, the second round, boy, I started to live. <laughs> <laughs> and my gosh, that, that girl looked beautiful, you know. I was beginning to see Cinderella. <laughs> yeah. And so that was the beginning of what it was to become. The beginning of uh, nine and a half years of complete self-destruction. I took it easy at the beginning. You know, I try to be a, a moderate drinker. <laughs> 
God, you guys are serious. <laughs> anyway, can you imagine an Indian doing a moderate drinking? Well, this one, uh, you know, he failed right from first drink on. Um, I could go on and tell you all these, everything in detail. But after 15 years in the society, I did go to Miami and I did see Bill W. from way up on stage. And I was way, way back with the rafters there with a pig farmer from Georgia. He looked at me and he says to me, you Indian? And I looked at him and I said, you pig farmer? <laughs> We followed each other just like glue for the rest of the <laughs> three days. Wonderful relationship. You know, Ku Klux Klan pig farmer than an Indian from the Coal Lake. Yeah. And uh, it was a wonderful exchange of friendship. I had a few trouble being in your country. You know, we stopped in one of these restaurants, and, uh, you know, they have this funny dish, and they put butter on it, and I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to eat it, <laughs> and uh, my wife didn't help much. She didn't, she's the first time she saw that, too, you know, those grits. Yeah. <laughs> For a northerner, that's some of the new dish I've never seen up there. <laughs> so, had a little trouble on the road. Um, I do respect this program. It helped a lot of our people. And the first example in my tribe was my cousin, a man called Cyril. This man all of a sudden disappeared from our, the table of uh, genius Indians drinking. He disappeared. And we condemned him, you know. We knew he had a, you know, he was a weakling anyway. You know. <laughs> he showed it finally, you know. <laughs> Anyway, that's the first example on my reservation. And my dad heard about this. He, he, he says, our, my son, he says, he has quit drinking. And he's turned into a saint, he says. And I couldn't figure out the old devil turning into a saint, you know. But uh, that's the first example on my reservation. Others have tried and they failed. They went to jail, they caught a little bit of uh, dryness or sobriety or something. They come home and we'd know they would drink anyway. So that was the example there. But Cyril, to the day he died, he never took that drink again. And that's the example that came to my reservation. And a uh, few of us now are in this program. I have two boys that's in the program. 
<laughs> Both of them, I couldn't help. But this is what I had to do. I had to turn him over to the higher power. And both made it. They're still sober today because of the higher power. I'm very honored just to speak to you people today. A little bit about me. I didn't drink very well. <laughs> In nine and a half years, I was self-destroyed. And uh, I love whiskey. And uh, and I kind of liked a white woman, too, you know. After a few drinks, they look just like Cinderella. <laughs> and that was the... Uh, the method that started to happen in my life. But like I said, in nine and a half years, I was completely destroyed. My will was gone. And uh, any kind of honesty was gone. And I just didn't have any connection anymore with a higher power of any sort. I once trained to become a Catholic priest. That's why I got an education. They fooled me, you know, these old priests. They wanted me to become one of them. But uh, when I went into that seminary after four months, you know, they interrogate you just like a CIA interrogates you guys. And they asked me, what do you want to be, you know? Well, I said, I'll be an artist, and then I'll be a priest. And he stared at me for about two minutes. And he, these, this, these are the words he used on me. He said, you can't serve two masters. That's what I was told. My response to that, well, get me the hell out of here then. <laughs> so they put me on a train the next day back, back to Alberta. And I went to an art school to follow that. And I'm a successful person as an artist today. Yeah. But I had a lot of help from my wife. She's sitting in the crowd here. Without that woman, I would never amount to anything. Not only that, she bore four handsome uh, boys. The shortest guy, just for your girl's information, shortest guy is six foot, the next guy is six one, six two, and six three. And they're all, some of you see those kids, they're, they're pretty handsome. And then there's two daughters in between, they're lovely daughters too. So, you know, there's alcoholism, you know, has, leads people into success if there's a higher power in your life. You know, that's the strangest power that any alcoholic can have or receive. To come to know of a 
power known as God. I didn't get to that right away, you know. It took me 15 years. And I had this old skinny cowboy, you know. I thought I could talk circles around that bastard. You know? <laughs> he had my number the day I walked in to his trailer. And he let me uh, suffer. <laughs> you know, but he... He knew I also went through the um, the irony of education in Indian Indian uh, residential schools. I'd been in it for eleven years, and uh, so my life did change, and I cared for nothing no more, no one, no person, not even my parents. That's the kind of person I became as a young man. You throw alcohol in there, and you get into real deep trouble. And that's where I found myself. How this program came to me was that I went to this uh, a meeting at the Canadian Air Force Base. And it's a place where n no self-respecting Indian want to go. You know, <laughs> and he's military. They got badges, and you know they, and they really think they're on top of the world. I guess they are, and they're well decorated, you know. But uh, they brought in Alcoholic Anonymous into the territory, and my old father, you know, he always being the old chief. He always listens for good things in our society. And he actually 12-stepped me without knowing that's what he did. I went to the first meeting. I walked a long ways. And uh, about half ways, some of my drunken friends stopped, you know. I thought they were going to give me a lift. They asked me, are you tired of walking? I said, yes. And they sped away and they hollered at me, keep walking. <laughs> so I kept walking. I did get to the military base gate. I was stopped, roughly. And uh, they wanted to know what business I had to do with the military I said, "There's a meeting here of Alcoholic Anonymous on your in your uh, area. I'd like to get to it." Said, "Do you have credentials?" I didn't have a single thing. I told him I'm uh, Treaty Indian number two eight seven. That didn't even stand, you know. Yeah, nothing. Anyway, it turned out that I went to my first meeting. And I heard some incredible things from a bunch of ex-bootleggers and liars. And uh, this is what they said. If you don't take that first drink, you won't get drunk. Now, isn't that the most insulting thing an alcoholic can hear? <laughs> God, how could they do this to me? My first meeting. 
And you know that after the, they gave me a ride up to the mission, the Catholic mission, and from there I had to walk about another four miles. And you know that darn thing started to work on me. You know, if you don't take that first drink, you won't get drunk. And it was driving me crazy, you know. <laughs> and I finally crawled into bed, and I thought I would fall asleep. And that thing just kept, you know, going around. <laughs> you know, once you get the message, it stays with you, you know. And that one stuck with me. And that changed my life. I go to meetings today, right around the whole area, and I, and this is a top secret. You know, you put money in there, eh, right? When a bag comes around. I used to put two large washers. And they would quietly give it back to me. <laughs> So next week, I would quietly put the two washers in. That's how I joined the people. Everybody thought I was paying right into it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much time I got here left. Uh, two minutes? God, that's short time, eh? <laughs> anyway, uh, in, within two minutes, I'll let you know that... Uh, I did sober up, and my sponsor put me in a chapter of the agnostic. There's a chapter in there for a guy like me who's supposed to have gone to become a priest and uh, because he made deals, you know. I made deals with God, and he didn't deliver. He never delivered me a bottle of whiskey or bringing a, somebody that had a lot of money to go and drink together. I didn't have all those lucks. You know? But the, unfor the fortunate thing is that all this ill luck is what brought me to you people. You know? And I'm glad that it did happen that way. I've been uh, happy to let you know that I'm going to give you a clue how to get an alcoholic proposes to a woman. Yeah. This is how it was. Either you go with me or you don't. She showed up one week later. We've been together since. <laughs> That's an alcoholic proposal. <laughs> I'm very fortunate just to be asked to speak to you people. I was going to tell you a bunch of lies, but I know you're a bunch of liars. You can catch on right away. <laughs> so I decided not to fault myself into that one. Um, happy, joyous, and free. I'm a free man now from that.
terrible, terrible obsession to drink. Isn't that a terrible thing just to get that feeling, you know, to, to get the, that first drink? <laughs> I don't know what it is about alcohol. you got to really act it out, you know. And I remember I just glug, 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 as quickly as possible. And then you, ah, you know, and you burn all the way down, you know. Isn't that a sensation, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we're familiar with you know and we and it ha happens over and over and over today you don't have to suffer those things it's wonderful to be able to stop in time I felt the hand of God touch my arm <laughs> so I better stop right here thank you <laughs> Boy, you got to watch out for these alcoholics, huh? I remember I was at my home group, and there was this, uh, they asked this old guy to share, and he said, no, I passed, and then he went on for 20 minutes. <laughs> and I, I'm like that, too. I, I do that same thing. Uh, let's just share a little bit of, about myself. I, I was born on the Navajo Reservation in Tuba City, Arizona, and was raised in uh, the Salt Lake City, Utah area. And... Uh, I, my, my, my alcoholic story has to do with a lot of jail time and, uh, treatment program. Um, the judge sentenced me to, to jail for my, uh, a year for my seventh or eighth DUI. And then he also sentenced me to, to treatment right afterwards. And this guy was supposed to transport me from the jail to treatment. And I said to him, Hey, I haven't seen my mom in, in a long time. What if I meet you there tomorrow? And he said, he knew exactly what I was thinking. You know, and he said, no, I'm taking you right to the, to the treatment program. And, uh, at the time, I was not grateful for any of that. But looking back on it, I have so much gratitude. You know, the kind of alcoholic I was, so stupid, so stubborn, so selfish. Oh, you couldn't tell me anything. And, and I could see that my higher power saw that it had to happen just like this. You need to be in jail for this long, and then you need to have to go to this other place. And uh, I'm so, so very grateful for that. I got to a point with my drinking that it was that I look, and, and I really like what Alex said about being free from that. Some mornings I wake up, and the first thing I, I have this wave of gratitude that almost overwhelms me, and, you know, almost start getting emotional. I'm not thinking about the first time I get up, I'm not thinking about where and how can I get that next drink and just consumed with that, with that obsession. And you have to do whatever it is you have to do. And that's not the way for me anymore. And I just get so, so glad that I'm, that I'm free from that, that obsession. Uh, it got so bad for me that I became alcoholic. I've got, you know, suicidal and scars on my wrist. My girlfriend OD'd on Christmas Eve. This is probably one of the, the lowest points of my life. And I remember when they were working on her in the ER, I remember, um, guess what I was doing out in the parking lot? Yeah. And this is over, over 30 years ago, and I still have a hard time saying that. It's still really hard for me to, to just, 
that that's how far alcohol had gotten me to that point. And, you know, one of the things that I did after I got sober is I made a, a commitment that I would never let alcohol get in between me and my loved ones ever again. And because of this program, you know, it helped me to do that. It helped me to, to maintain that, uh, that commitment. Um, one of the things that, that really helped me when I first started out in AA was they said, you got to do a lot of, you got to do a lot of service work. And so I went to meetings in the, in the jails and in the prisons and, and treatment programs and, uh, detoxes. And I have to tell you, I, I'm not, maybe, maybe there are some of you who wake up in the morning and you say, you know, I think I'm going to make some cookies for my neighbor, or I think I'm going to help my, <laughs> I'm going to make, I'm going to help my neighbor with their yard. I have never woke up and had that thought. <laughs> and that was one of the things that was good about AA for me, is it put me on the firing line, as it says in the big book, put me on the firing line, where by myself I wouldn't have done that. But because they said, you need to do this, Rod, and I, I had good good sponsors and good old timers around me, and I saw it was working for them. And so I, I did what they what they told me, even though sometimes I didn't want to. But I, but I could see the wisdom in, in all of those things that they were telling me. When I got to go home after chairing a jail meeting, an AA, an AA jail meeting, and that door slammed shut, you know, I had some gratitude that I didn't have when I left, when I first got in there. And let me tell you, some of you might relate to this. That jail air breathes differently than that free air, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, go ahead and introduce our next speaker. Dan Kay from Montana. Uh, my name is Dan Kay, and I am an alcoholic from Montana. Um, I, uh, in addition to being an alcoholic, the, the Creator sought to make me a Kootenai Indian. I've been asked to speak here today about my experience, strength, and um, sorry, my experience, strength, and hope. Sorry. Um, yeah, um, I'm trying not to look. Um, okay, so uh, uh, my mom was a, uh, a tribal pro juvenile probation officer, um, and my dad was a tribal juvenile probationer. <laughs> so... Uh, that'll kind of give you a quick assessment of reservation life in the 1970s. So, um, you know, my, my dad uh, didn't do anything but drink. And so my mom thought it was best to uh, adopt me out uh, through the system. And I was adopted to a uh, Norwegian Anglo ranching family from eastern Montana. So I was incredibly unique, and I, I remain incredibly unique to this day. Not, um, and so I grew up uh, knowing I was Native American. I knew my parents didn't keep that from me, um, but I didn't have the sense of being and the sense of place to appreciate what the Creator had done for me. I just didn't have that. Um, and so I spent most of my life trying not to be me. You know, I would, I would, um, my mom will tell you, we, she would go to uh, the store and in, Indians couldn't go in to buy things. 
And so she would make herself look like she wasn't Indian so she could go in the store and buy things. And that will tell you, uh, that kind of is, is what I tried to do for most of my life. I tried not to be me. I tried not to respect the creator's choice in making me who I was. And I actively sought to diminish myself on a minute-by-minute basis. Um, I'm, I was fortunate. My family is, is kind, and they um, made sure that I had education and food and, and everything I needed, and I didn't always appreciate that the way I should have. So uh, around 16, my cousin Eddie and I um, decided that we were going to steal my grandma's liquor bottles from the airplane and sneak out into the golf course, which we were not allowed, and we were going to drink them. And I remember looking up at the stars as we're drinking these, and they were in glass back then, I'll tell you how old I am. And I remember looking up at the stars and just, as as the warmth went right down the center of my body, and I was like, this is exactly how I want to feel the rest of my life. <laughs> Nobody is going to make me feel, nobody's going to make me care, and I'm not going to have to feel the hurt and the pain and whatever it is that I'm holding on to ever again. And... I, you know, it was just a night, but it seemed to last 20 years. In fact, it did. <laughs> um, and I was never really able to catch that feeling again. I couldn't manage the drinks, and, or in my case, those other stuff. Um, I, I never could manage it to catch that feeling again. And by the end of my drinking, um, I, on a day-to-day basis, I could not tell you how far down I was going to go. I would leave, I would wake up with a set of rules, and by the end of the day, those rules may or may not be there. Um, I uh, was successful at a house, and all the things that people say um, make it make the difference, but I just was dead inside and didn't care to be here, and I couldn't figure out a way to get out. I just didn't know the way. And um, so I laid in my backyard, even though I had a job, that's not very. That's not a wise idea. Uh, first six months, and I got drunk every day, and I drank it by the handled bottle, and I just waited to die. And um, people put me in the back of my own car, and they said we're going on a trip. And 400 miles later, I was at rehab. And it was kind of at the end of my drinking. I had I had said I kind of checked out and laid in my backyard. Um, I had convinced myself that I was empowering my assistant to to develop their skills by having my assistant do my job because I could no longer type because of my drinking. I couldn't make my hands work at the same time. Um, I would go, I, I decided that the best, since I thought the people at the liquor store were on to the fact I couldn't sign my name anymore, I would go to the cash machine. But I would stick my card in, and I couldn't make my fingers work fast enough before the machine would time out and spit my card back. So physically, I just couldn't manage anymore. Um, And so uh, I went to the hospital every day uh, in a month in an ambulance, and one day I went twice. Um, And how you do that is you fall down the flight of stairs, the EMT comes they make you give up the two bottles of alcohol that you're holding, and they take you to the hospital, they sew you up, and when you wake up, you say to yourself, I need a drink. 
So you unplug yourself and you walk home and you start drinking again. And they, it turns out with a head injury, they like to send people back for you and they'll bring you back. Um, so that's the kind of uh, situation I was in. I went to rehab seven times in a calendar year. Um, I, I have this dream here that I'm going to run into my uh, first... 12-step person who 12-stepped me first, and that's the insurance representative from Aetna Health Insurance. <laughs> who, a, a fine gentleman who I don't even, I will never know his name, he called me on the phone and he said, you don't know me, but I work for Aetna, and you are burning up the ambulance, and have you ever tried, thought about AA and getting a sponsor? <laughs> when when you've gotten on that level on Aetna's radar, you're you're... You're causing, you're causing some mayhem. <laughs> so um, that's just how that goes. So I uh, went to the rehab over and over. I picked out my little salmon and my laughing cow cheese and went to the museums as I was supposed to do. And every single time it didn't work. I would get drunk within a couple days. Um, I just couldn't be. My insides never were equal to my outsides, and I was never in the right spot. And um, so the last time I got drunk, I went to read this back to one of the rehabs, and the lady says, well, we know you have that now, so you can stay. And I looked her right in the face, and I said, this is not going to do it. This will not do it. It has to be an inside thing. There's something broken. All the museums and all the food and all the, the bus trips are not going to fix it. So I checked myself out, and I went back to where I lived, and I was sitting on a park bench, and I was absolutely despondent because I did not know what to do. And I looked down, and there was a rock sitting there. And it had a thumb hole where water or nature had worn it away. And I looked at it, and I was like, you know what? You are taking pretty good care of yourself today. And you've been doing that for millions of years. And you've been doing it better than I have been. So I picked up that rock, and I went to my first AA meeting. I put it in my pocket, and I carried that rock around with me for years in my pocket. Um, and when I had a problem that I didn't understand, I would talk to the rock. I mean, it seems crazy, but I, I didn't drink. Um, so, uh, and that became my higher power. I always had a, a problem with the, the, the beard and the bricks and the, the, that stuff because it didn't match the trees and the rocks and the air and the people and the nature and the, uh, what I know what I believe inside. It didn't match. My lives didn't match. And um, so that rock became my universe. Uh, I slowly got um, a couple days of sobriety thanks to the, the fine program of AA. And um, AA has really changed my life. Um, I um, am learning to appreciate the Creator's gift to me and why it is so important, and why, um, and how I can use it to help others, such as standing here. Um, I, uh, my sponsor's always telling me, just tell your story. So I'm just going to do it. I get a little nervous. Um, I, uh, AA has really done a number on, on my life. Uh, I have, I'm older, I have less hair, and other than that, still all the same defects as I had when I got here. Hopefully not, but. Um, and through the process of AA, my insides have become equal to my outsides most of the time. 
you know, I'm not perfect this morning. If, if the lady from the door is in here today, I'm making amends to her, but I'm not perfect. Uh, <laughs> and um, I, I, but I get better as a result of this program and hanging out with you guys. I've been to Connecticut and Washington, D.C. and California, and I can breathe. Um, I don't breathe as well as I do on the reservation, but I can still breathe. Um, I can be me, and I can allow everybody else to be you. Um, we're all good. I'm not nearly the unique, you know, person that I was. I, every day I'm, I'm kind of resentful. Some days I wake up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just ordinary. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, what happened? <laughs> um, I've been, I've been blessed, uh, by the program of AA, and I don't share it enough. So, uh, yeah, AA has allowed me to uh, rejoin my um, my family, even though I was still physically with them. I wasn't mentally there, or my heart wasn't there. Um, and it's allowed me to do a lot of beneficial things. I've, um, as a result of this program, I've been able to become a judge and do a whole bunch of things, like work in Washington, D.C., and make justice for Indian people, help do that. And that is something I could not do without you guys. I could not do any of the anything that I do today without AA. Because if, if left to my own devices, I'm that kid who's so drunk I can't plug in four numbers. And I'm the kid who doesn't want to be here. And you're not going to make me feel or experience or participate. And so I have to. I really have to say thank you for welcoming me to the rooms and making me feel like I belonged even when I was just looking at you and picking out differences. You know, my my first meeting was the men's prison meeting in Butte, Montana. Um, and I sat there and all I got from the the meeting, I mean, I couldn't hold my coffee. I was wearing slippers and I was like three days sober with a little rock. And um, I remember they said, you will be amazed before you are halfway through. And I looked up and I was like, yeah, wow me. You know what I mean? I'm waiting. Wow me. Go ahead. Make me a day, right? I'm good. And I, w I would really have to tell you that that's how it has been, only better. My, I call my new life my life of escalators, elevators, and moving sidewalks because it is breathlessly easy compared to even the best day before. The best day before was... Sorrow, misery, mayhem, and despair. And the only reason I came was because I wanted a 50-50 chance. That's all I wanted. I wanted a 50-50 chance that things might be just okay for today. Because they never were okay when I drink. Um, so, uh, yeah, I can only say thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Dan. I'm sure I really appreciate your your story about your powerlessness because I I can relate to that so much. I think everybody in this room can relate to to, to that. I, I I always wondered what is there about AA that has us all together like this? Because when we were we were changing rooms, you know, I heard somebody said to somebody else, "It's good we're all sober." 
because if we were coming in and out like that, if there was some drink, is there some alcohol? It would have, it would have been scary. <laughs> and I, and and sometimes I think to myself, how is it that we manage to do that? And in the second tradition of AA, it says our, our ultimate authority is a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. So that's one ultimate authority we have, a higher power. And I think our, our second ultimate authority is alcohol. And we all know that if we succumb to that higher power, it's going to kick our asses and we're going to be dead. And I think that's why we all give of ourselves somehow, some way, so that we can all keep this thing together. And and for me, it's uh, been a lot of service work that I've done. Um, I had I went to this, uh, I'm from the Pacific region in, in out, out west, and there are 15 areas in there. Usually an area is a state, and uh, uh, so there was this guy, he said, uh, I do service work in Alcoholics Anonymous, to pay back the debt I owe AA. The only problem is, the longer I stay in this thing, the bigger the debt gets. <laughs> and and I, can, I can sure relate to that. I sure understand that. Um, I wanted to, to say a little bit about uh, um, some of the things that, that I've noticed with Alcoholics Anonymous and, and Native American tradition and culture. And I, and I think... Um, I didn't understand this when I first came to, to AA. And I think uh, uh, sometimes a lot of uh, uh, Native people maybe don't understand that too, that there are a lot of similarities between step work and, and Native culture. I remember this uh, this one guy, I went to this sweat lodge. And for those of you who don't know, sweat lodge is the Native American ceremony where they have these hot rocks in the middle in a, in a, in a pit and the medicine man pours water on the rocks and steam comes off and it gets very hot and that's when the singing and the prayer start. And it lasts about three to four hours depending on, on where you're at. And anyway, I was there to this one, this one gentleman was pouring the water for the people. And he said, uh, I have done some things that caused me great shame and great guilt. And he said, I went to, to my elders and I talked to them about these things. And I told them, I don't feel worthy to pour the water for the people. And he said, my elder said to me, it is exactly because of that unworthiness that you need to pour the water for the people. And I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, fourth step, fifth step, tenth step. You know, and I, I just kind of marvel at that sometimes. Um, I went to this native gathering in Arizona, and this one guy... <laughs> This one guy, he was talking about trying to get sober, and he tried everything he could think of, and nothing worked. And he went to this medicine man, and he told the medicine man about wanting to get sober, and the medicine man said, this is a white man's disease. It requires a white man's cure. And then he ran into AA, and he believes that that was what he was talking about. And another another native there, he said, uh, um, there is a lot of similarities between Native culture and AA. He said, I think Bill W. went to a lot of powwows. <laughs> so so I've, I've noticed that myself in, in, in the work that I've done. I've, I've read the big book. I've read the, the 12 traditions and the 12 steps books and the, and the concepts 
of oral service and, you know, done a lot of those kinds of things. And I have a, a, not a, a lot of knowledge about all of that. But one of the things I've learned is that um, knowledge of the path is not a substitute for, for walking it. You know, and, and that's kind of some of the things that I've learned both in uh, native teachings and in AA teachings. You know, and I'm, and I'm really, really grateful for all of that. Uh, I had a chance in my journey to be the delegate from, for Utah in 97, 98. And one of the things that I said for a long time, uh, and I know some people didn't appreciate it, but in the third chapter, in the third edition of the big book, there's a story, Join the Tribe. And I read that and, and I told people, and I know, like I said, there wasn't very, some people it wasn't very popular. I said, uh, I, I'm not saying anything against the gentleman's story, but I've met very few natives who speak that kind of broken English anymore. You know, I, I said, maybe they need to update these, you know, add another, another, uh, update these stories, these native stories. And so, I was elected to go to be a delegate and sent to the General Service Conference in New York where they vote about these kinds of things. And I just happened to be uh, put on the literature committee. And guess what one of our agenda items was? Yeah, a new edition of the big book in 1998. And so we we talked in long hours into the night, you know, and, and the representatives, there's 93 delegates from the United States and Canada that go to New York every spring to do the, to discuss and vote on the business of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you, through your participation, you vote for all of those people and then they, you can tell them what to do back there in New York. And, uh, they're supposed to listen to you. <laughs> but, uh, one of the things that they talked about was, uh, was about, There's a lot of things that, that we're asked to uh, consider when we're discussing these things. And this is one of the things that they told us to consider when we were discussing the new edition of the big book, the fourth edition. The story section, and this is from Bill W. He wrote a letter in 1954. The story section of the big book is far more important than most of us think. To increase the power and variety of this display to utmost should be, therefore, no routine or hurried job. The best will be none too good. The main purpose of the revision is to bring the story section up to date, to portray more adequately a cross-section of those who have found help. Since the audience for the book is likely to be newcomers, anything from the point of view of context or style that might offend or alienate those who are not familiar with the program should be carefully eliminated. You know, and, and we thought about these kinds of things. There was a lot of information that came to us. And after, uh, after a long discussion, we presented the, the, the committee, the literature committee of delegates was about 10 or 12. And then we went to the whole general service conference members who were about 130. And we presented to them the agenda item that there be a fourth edition of the big book. And they voted on it, and out of the 130, only about five people voted against it. And you know, I I was just uh, very amazed, and, and and yeah, the fourth edition, I got my fourth edition big book here somewhere, in my in my pack here. There are two updated native stories in that in the fourth edition big book, and so I'm I'm just really uh, I I like to share these kinds of stories because I think 
I think people need to understand how all of this is connected. You know, there are three legacies in Alcoholics Anonymous, recovery, unity, and service. And uh, I, I, we, were, we were told, uh, what is the size of your triangle? You know, are they all equal sides? Are you doing as much service as you are recovery in, in the traditions, for instance? And I think that's, that's a good way to, to understand it and look at it. Um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm very, uh, I feel, I feel like it's something that we need to continue to talk about as we go forward. Because one of the things that I've learned is the most important person in any AA gathering is the newcomer. But one of the things I believe is there's even somebody more important than that, and that's the person who hasn't walked through that door yet. And it's our responsibility to make sure that this program is intact 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. You know, that we know that when I came here, thank God AA was here for me because I I don't think anything else would have worked. <laughs> I really don't. And and there may be, I'm sure there'll be people like that in in our future. So I think that's our obligation and our responsibility. I, I, I'm not meaning to be on, on my soapbox, even though I accidentally got on top of it. <laughs> but that's how that's how strongly I feel about it. <laughs> I want to introduce uh, Dave D from South Dakota, our next speaker. I'm I'm Dave, and I'm an alcoholic. And I uh, I listen to a lot of speaker tapes. And I heard a guy say this, uh, and I thought I should, because they're recording it, I want them to know back in South Dakota where I come from that that I'm in this, uh, what is it, the World Congress building? Giant building, 50,000 alcoholics, all, all right here in this room, right? And that's that's amazing to me. I just thought, wow, that's uh and they invited me to be up here on this panel. Uh I'm privileged to be here. I uh I'm from South Dakota. I'm from uh, originally from Rapid City. I live in Custer now, it's about fifty miles away. Oh, it's a it's a border town over there. Uh, my mom's from uh, Pine Ridge. My dad came out to South Dakota to be in the Air Force. He's from Toledo, Ohio. So I'm a half-breed, and, and uh, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know what that was because all my relatives were Indians, and and, uh, and I hung out with them. We'd go to the reservation every every uh, weekend, practically, and, and I didn't know there was a difference. And, and uh, as I got older, I learned the differences, and, and uh, then as I got older... I got a real chip on my shoulder about that and uh got really irritated and and uh didn't like people in general just didn't like them and uh I started drinking when I was pretty young uh I grew up in this town and it was a uh, where we lived there was a lot of drunks a lot of drunks down along the creek and so I seen drunks my whole life and and uh when I was small we would uh, we would uh, steal their bottles float them down the creek and then we would see if we could uh, we'd 
put minnows in the bottles and creek water and see if we could get the drunks to drink it. And, uh, and uh, you know, it, uh, I found that first, you know, I, I had drinks from the time I was little, just here and there, just, you know, controlled drinking with the parents giving it to you and the uncles. So, I, you know, I got sips, and but that was about it. And the first time I got drunk, there was a gang that my brother belonged to some gang that ran the streets, and, and uh, they didn't want me in the gang. Um, back then I was was kind of big and clumsy and overweight. Now I'm an Adonis. <laughs> it took a while for that. But... Uh, but believe it or not, back then I was just big, you know, clumsy, overweight, slow, not very athletic. And uh, they didn't want me in their gang, but what? But I did learn how to be really sneaky. And uh, they were down by the railroad tracks acting kind of strange. And then they left, and I went down there, and, and there was a case of beer, and I and I stole their beer. And, uh, and I took it up the, the railroad tracks a couple blocks, and and I and I was smart enough to know that just in case somebody's watching me, I'm not going to hide it all in the same spot. So I hid it in a few different spots, and then I went down to hang out with the gang, just to see if they would you know let me hang out with them. And uh, they didn't. And I thought, well, they had their chance. And uh, I started to drink their beer, and uh, and it was just like you heard here today. It, it just was absolutely amazing. You know, I I was on the banks there uh, by the railroad track, and, and uh, I was I was the life of the party. You know, I was the only one there, but <laughs> but I was I was the life of the party. You know, and and you know about three beers into it, I thought that gang they were a bunch of losers. Oh, why would I want to hang around with a gang like that anyway? You know, they're not going anywhere. You know. I knew I was going somewhere, and, and that's all I needed, you know. And, and uh, you know, the next day I tried to hang out with them again. Oh, later on that night, I did run into them, and, and just in case they didn't know that I drank their beer, I spilled a little bit on me. And then I went up to the kind of the head guy in the gang, and I acted a little drunker than I was, and I pushed him a little bit, kind of ran into him, and, you know, and I and I knew I thought this is just great. It was it was it was the best day of my life up to that point, because they wanted to kill me, and then uh, I knew they weren't going to do anything. I knew they weren't going to touch me because I couldn't have drank all that beer. So they wanted it, and 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 they did. And I did hide two beer cans in one corner, and I let them have two beers, and and uh, you know, and I told them I only found a six pack, and. Anyway, they didn't believe any of that, but it felt so good to kind of push them around, and, and I just thought this is great. And so but from then on, I, I drank as much as I could, drank as much as I could, as often as I could, and and I was big, and so I, I could buy booze pretty young. I could buy booze. In fact, I used to hang out with a bunch of older guys, and uh, they would make me buy the booze. They used to have drive-up liquor stores, and and I would be in the back seat, and they would drive up, and I'd say, this looks bad. You should let me drive, you know, because I'm in the back seat. No, you just stay back there. We'll pull up. And and that. so I did. I bought booze, and, and uh, I got to hang out with the older guys. And, you know, I I just drank a lot. I drank a lot. And, and uh, 
ended up going to treatment way before I was an alcoholic. And, and they uh, <laughs> prematurely sent me there. And, and I also, uh, I was one of those drunks that, that did, uh, I did get beat up a lot. Um, I got into car wrecks and motorcycle wrecks and I uh, rolled my pickup and, and uh, in a blackout and uh, I passed out on a motorcycle one night. That was a bad deal. Bad night. So they took my vehicles away and uh, then I got ran over in the parking lot. And uh, I wasn't safe on foot, apparently. And, uh, it was a bar parking lot, though, so, so, uh, and I knew the bouncer, and he he uh, came to my rescue, and uh, called the ambulance. I was in the hospital for uh, three or four days, and they figured out I was I figured out I was going to live, and I called my buddy up, and I said, "Yeah, I'm I'm going to live." So, can you bring some stuff up? <laughs> so he started bringing uh, beer, and on Saturdays I would uh, tell the nurses it was my my religion that I'd fast on Saturday, and then Saturday he would bring up a six pack of beer and a pizza and two half pints that he'd leave me with, and uh, so I would uh, drink with him and have pizza Saturday night, and then he'd leave me with the two half pints. And so. I told my sponsor that story and, and uh, after I sobered up, and and he says to me, he said, you, you realize that's insane, don't you? And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. You know, it sounds dangerous, I know. I just didn't see the insane part. And he explained it to me that the insanity of, is that I was doing the same thing in the hospital that got me into the hospital. And I thought, well, okay, if you put it that way. <laughs> I kind of understand. I understand now what when you say that, you know, we're insane. And then, uh, so my drinking, it was one of those, I, I just did things. Uh, I loved to drink, absolutely. And I was a whiskey drinker. You know, it, I had to drink it uh, kind of slow because it, it, it went down too fast. It just, if you mix pop with anything, it goes down fast. So I would... I would, and if it's straight, sometimes it's just smooth, so I'd add, add water to it to make it go down slower. And it kind of kept me, held me back. I, I thought it did. I thought it kind of, uh, the rest of the crew didn't. <laughs> it slowed me down, but I thought it was slowing me down. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up uh, getting married. I, I thought that would slow me down, and uh, that didn't slow me down. I, I had a couple kids, and Neither one of them slowed me down. And uh, it wasn't until later on I was getting a divorce. That kind of slowed me down. <laughs> and uh, that was a bad deal. And then, uh, But I was, you know, I just, uh, I, was a con I was an electrician. I did construction work and traveled to different places on, uh, on the road. And, and I would try to, try to sober up a little bit, try to, you know, maintain and just couldn't do it. Just couldn't. I mean, there was a lot of times I wanted to sober up and couldn't do it. You know, I, I listened to people talk about that, and I thought, well, I never did that. And, well, the truth was I knew I couldn't. I just knew that I couldn't stop drinking. The best I could do is say I was going to tell myself I'm going to slow down, I'm going to taper off, I'm just not going to drink so much. And uh, 
but after about three beers, you forget, you know, you just forget. And uh, so I I uh, ended up drinking a lot, like I said, and and uh, and I got into some car wrecks and went to jail whenever I didn't get into a wreck. They'd send me to jail, and apparently the way it worked then is that if, if you were in a wreck and you were in bad shape, they'd send you to the hospital, but if you're in a wreck and you were okay, they'd send you to jail. So... So I went to jail on the good wrecks, and uh, they weren't so bad. But they, uh, I just got to be a nuisance, I guess. My family uh, pretty much didn't want to be around me. Um, I kind of hid from them. I knew what I was doing wasn't right. I just, I knew that the way I was living was not what I wanted to do. It's not the way I wanted to live. They were good people. You know, and, and I just couldn't couldn't stop drinking. And and it just you know, uh I'm kind of a light skinned and have blue eyes and when I drink you really notice that I'm Indian. I mean it just it comes out all over. It it just comes out all over, let me tell you. I uh it's one of the things I can't hide. And uh, so I grew up in this town, and, and I ended up, uh, and I spent most of my life there and ended up sobering up there. Um, I got uh, kicked out of my house one morning, and uh, the cops came to my house, and they, they kicked me out. And I remember they were just disgusted, just absolutely disgusted with me. And the cops said, just leave, just leave and don't come back. And I thought, you know, I deserve to go to jail. You know, I, I thought he was going to work me over a little bit, send me to jail. And I was just humiliated, I thought. You know, he, the cops don't even want me anymore. <laughs> this is this is not a good place. This is, And I just walked away. You know, I just thought, oh, God. I mean, I knew I shouldn't volunteer, so so I just walked away. Then I thought, you know, I further I got away, I thought, well, he's going to find out what's going on. and probably going to chase me down. So I figured by then, no, I should just keep going, go hide. And I, and I, uh, where I live, there's there's lots of places where drunks hide. So I knew about those hiding places for years. You know, they have little forts and and uh, where they drink and they stash their stuff. And and I used to uh, visit them occasionally, and we would go down to the park. I was never actually a street person, but but some of my best buddies were, and so I would visit them and then drink with them. And I remember drinking with them, and we would uh, they would have a gallon jug. It was a milk jug, and they would mix the stuff in there, and they would mix a uh, Lysol, and they would mix it with lemon, with little screen bottles of lemon, and then mix it with water and make this uh, drink. And I, they would pass the drink, and I would drink it, you know, just to be sociable, because that's what they had. <laughs> You know, I I knew that if they had whiskey, I would be drinking that too. And and, uh, and I would look at those guys and I think, God, if I ever got as bad as you guys, I would quit drinking. Man, that's just terrible. You guys bought you bought this stuff. This is bad. This is bad. And and, and I I just couldn't believe that you know they would get that bad off. And uh, later on, I realized after I sobered up, I sobered up, and I'm doing great in AA. 
So over three years or something, went to the store. I had to go buy some uh, rubbing alcohol. And I thought, well, geez, my first trip in the store, I'm going to buy rubbing alcohol. I wonder how I'll do. And I'm sober three eight, three years in AA. And, and I went to the to the place, and I picked up the rubbing alcohol and thought, this is no problem. And, I, and then I was really brave, and I looked at the liquor store, and I thought, wow, it doesn't even faze me to look at the liquor store. And I walked by the cleaning products, and there was that nice on it. Oh, it's not a problem. <laughs> I knew that uh, I could pick that stuff up and buy it. Nobody would know what I was using it for. An AA person standing right next to me wouldn't have any idea. I just knew that. And, and I know, like, they taught me in AA, I have to be honest with myself. And I knew I had a problem. You know, and so I knew that this thing that you guys gave me, this sobriety, is, is uh, it can go away. It can go away. That kind of taught me that. It, it, they say it a lot of different ways. It depends on what I'm doing. If I'm not doing the right thing, it, it could go away. And I could end up drunk. You know, and, and uh, for me to drink, like people say, for me to drink, it's to die. I know that. I watched people go out and. And I know the way I was when I got here. So I got sober. Like I said, I got kicked out, and I went down to the, uh, they have an Alano club down there in Rapid. And uh, I knocked on the door. It was bright and early when the cops kicked me out. So there was nobody in there but the cleaning guy, and he was sweeping. And he heard me knocking on the door, and then he looked up, and he had a little Walkman. He took that off and he heard me and then he seen me and he put his Walkman back on and he kept on sweeping. And I thought, you know, they told me that if I ever wanted to come to AA, they'd be there. And this guy is just ignoring me, you know. <laughs> so I left and and, uh, and I drank as much as I could that day. And uh, started off about six in the morning. And uh drank a lot that day. I went and and, uh, and I was just going to get drunk, I thought. You know, I'm not going to my house. The, the house I got kicked out of, they were taking it away. The bank was taking it away anyway, so it wasn't a big loss. You know, and, and, uh, and I didn't have a job and uh didn't have a car, so that's why I was walking. So I just, uh you know, I didn't know what to do. So I thought I'll get drunk. I went to a bar and I uh, started drinking, and I thought, you know, I uh, can't afford to do this all day. So I found, I knew where they drink in the morning, so I went over to my buddy's house. And they were doing early morning drinking. That's where you party and, you know, tell jokes. And you just don't drink. I just wanted to drink. And, and they, I bugged them, and I said, you know, I want, I want, uh, we need to go get some more. You don't have enough here. And they said, well, you know, just take it easy. And they put on a, a, there was a show on, it was an HBO fight. It was a rerun. I didn't know it was a rerun. And uh, it was the first time I'd seen the fight, so I was all excited. But I was drinking then, so I thought, you know, this is, um, we're going to run out of booze. You guys don't seem to understand. Then they found a bottle of whiskey, and they they gave that to me to shut me up for a while. And they realized that wasn't doing it. They were like, no, you you don't understand, guys. I, I got money. I want to go buy some booze. We got it start drinking here. So they finally did take me to the liquor store and uh, 
that was the last day I drank. Went to a different party, and, and I was getting tired of being around people, and I just loaded up my pockets with uh, booze and took off across the street, across the town, and went up to one of these uh, forts right above my house where the drunks stay, and, and I started drinking up there. Finished, actually, I finished drinking up there. And I and I hear people say this, and I, I know what it happened for me, and, and I think I, I prayed to God that day. I prayed to God. And and I didn't know I was praying to God. I was cussing out God, what I thought I was doing. I thought, you know where I'm at. I know where I'm at. Can't hide nothing from you. I need out of here. I want out. I want out. And I, I was hoping that, you know, he would uh, send me somewhere else. <laughs> Not with you people. <laughs> I was ready to, to die. I was ready to, and I wanted out. In fact, I, I had a suicide plan that, that you know, a lot of us have those suicide plans. And I used to practice. I used to practice with my, uh, I had a 30 out 6 I'm a hunter, so I practiced with my 30 out 6 I was real careful because I knew I'd drink a lot, so I'd take the bolt out. But then I, I got good at it, so I'd put the bolt in. Then I would cock it and fire but I would never have a bullet in it. And uh, and I actually saved a special bullet because I knew the way I drank that. If I didn't save that bullet, I wouldn't have any. So I hid the bullet above my closet door and, and uh, went to I was looking down at the house and, and uh, looked down there, and I figured, well, they're, they're probably all gone now. That was a house I was kicked out of. And I figured they're probably all gone, and uh, I'll just uh, go down there and get that thirty out six and shoot myself. And because uh, I had plenty of good reason, I figured I was always waiting for the perfect reason. That way, people would understand. You know, I wanted them to understand why I did this. I just thought they would think it's strange that I would commit suicide for no reason. So, <laughs> so I had to wait for that. And uh, so I, I headed down there, and then I realized that my gun was in hock. And, uh, <laughs> and that's a, that was a that kind of made me mad. I tell you what. So then I thought, well, I'll just go downtown and I'll uh, just walk in front of a car. Then I thought, you know, just my luck, I'll, I'll end up waking up in the hospital again. I already got ran over once. Survive that. So can't do that deal. So I uh I came to AA. I had nowhere else to go. <laughs> I'd been over there earlier that day, that guy was sweeping the place up. I figured it'd be all cleaned up by now and <laughs> I went back there and uh they they uh Pretty much saved my life. I do. Uh, I did get a sponsor. My sponsor was a smart guy. I. 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 Uh, I'm attracted to the really smart people. <laughs> I kind of like myself. I'm. <laughs> Thank you.
And uh, that was okay, you know. It was okay. He he took me through the steps. He was he was real. He was real um, intellect intellectual guy, I guess. And he sponsored a lot of people, and and that was good. It was good for me, you know. And then uh, sobered up. And what happened was I was I was sober like three or four days, and actually I was sober three days when I got this sponsor because it wasn't going too well being sober. It wasn't going well at all. I couldn't stand being sober. I was going crazy. There was stuff coming out in the, you know, in the room. I got a motel room, and I didn't know what to do. So I got the sponsor, and I called him, and uh, I called him at uh, 2 in the morning. And at midnight, I thought, it's too early. It's too late to call him at midnight. So I thought, I'll, I'll calm myself down. And at 2 in the morning, that wasn't working. So I, I realized I better call him. So I called him and I said, uh, I said, you know, uh, he goes, how's it going? I said, well, hey, how, how are you doing? He goes, <laughs> he said, well, why'd you call? Why'd you call? And I said, well, I don't want to drink. He said, well, then why'd you call? I said, well, I called just to let you know I don't want to drink. <laughs> And then he uh, he said, "Well, it sounds to me like you want to drink." And I said, "No, no, I really, really don't want to drink. But I think I need a drink. I can't do this being sober. Can't do it." So I, uh, you know, I talked to him. He made me go through the steps. I I stayed sober. Whenever I talked to him, I stayed sober. You know, and, and uh, but I, I do want to thank you guys because you guys keep me sober. That's you keep me sober, and I need to be sober. Without this, without this, I could be drunk. Thank you. I am Jeanette. I am an alcoholic. Hear me, okay? Sober today only because of God and sponsorship since August 28th of 1988, and for that I owe you my life. Um, I am the newcomer <laughs> next to these two gentlemen here. Grateful Lester's here because he's younger than me. I just need to know if there's anyone under a year of sobriety here in the room today. Right on. Woo! Right on. I promise you that as I was being placed in protective custody Mother's Day weekend of 1988, that I was not envisioning this day with you. <laughs> okay? I always say I'm living a dream I never knew I had. I am so grateful to Eva for asking me to participate, most importantly to uh, my friend Carol, who gave her my name, and um, a line of sponsorship that has taught me to always say yes. Um, but most importantly, uh, to my mother, who I give great gratitude and thanks for the blood that runs through my veins. Um, I am Blackfeet Indian. I am from the great state of Montana. Although <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing time in Texas, so if there's any savage Plains Indians out there with me, um, we could we could really have a massacre on this town. Um, I uh, I was born on the San Carlos Indian Reservation in uh, southeastern Arizona, which is where my mother, uh, my mom, having kissed a cute marine in um, Southern California. Uh, 
I happened, and uh, once she found out that he was married, uh, she took off to be with her uh, father and her mother, and my grandparents took her in, and my grandpa was working um, in San Carlos at the time. And uh, my father, finding out that my mom was pregnant with me, uh, tracked her down and left that first family um, and a son that was born. I have a brother born in April 71, and I was born in October 71. So um, my dad was very busy. And um, so my dad tracked my mom down and um, thus would spend, you know, the next uh, very many years of my life with shattering glass and in and out of foster homes. And every time something broke in the middle of the night and every time he punched her and every time she ended up in ICU, it was my fault. Because if she'd have never gotten pregnant with me, he had never hunted her down. And I understand this disease today and I understand that my father had it. But most importantly, I understand that I had, had nothing to do with me. You know, because I felt like my mother's people looked at me with that contempt and that disregard, you know, because I was Gunny's daughter and carried that for a really long time. Now, I'm a mudblood. Um, I thank Harry Potter for teaching me that term. Um, I'm a half breed. Um, so on my reservation, I was dirty and not a part of and didn't belong. But then I come to your city <laughs> and I am spit on and I got gum thrown in my hair because I did not fit in and belong. So where do you fit and what do you do? You know, my whole life, it is the color of my skin. Um, but most importantly, just being the dirty little Indian girl from the wrong side of the tracks. You know, I, I spent some time in Butte, Montana as a kid and um, used to shine shoes at the M&M. And the uh, shanty and the shack and all my uncles were in there. You know, my mom is one of 14 and my dad is the oldest of um, 17. So, yes, we're Catholic. And um, <laughs> and so, you know, I spend my life following my dad all around these bars, you know, and shining shoes and um, never wanted to drink. Didn't want to be like my uncles. You know, I had Uncle Bill who married a Hopi woman. And he would, you know, he would carve Kachina dolls on my couch and he would say, Coyote, don't drink that hooch. It'll make you crazy. And um, but I had no idea. I don't have a coming um, to know you story with alcohol. I don't have this fabulous first drink story. You know, I just feel like I've always drank. You know, I had a sponsor who talked about, you know, she drank two bottles of wine with six girls, which we know right there is bad math, um, at a church camp. And she, they ran around the camp to have the alcohol go through their so I don't have that. I can just tell you that my whole life, and you can call my mother right now, she will tell you that I am the girl your mother warned you about. Um, my mom was warning you about me. I always got a plan. I always got something going on. And I'm raised in the most beautiful place, the place of the last stronghold you could force my people, Glacier Park. And, um, I get this idea one day, you know, cause we, I'm always the kid who got to go to town to get the commodities, right? Cause I'm, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. You leave me home unattended. It is on. And, um, I, so I'd get to go to town and, and we'd come back and I got this idea that I'm going to catch a bear. And so I take, you know, the, the federal government's idea of nutrition for us is, you know, a number 10 can of heavy peaches and syrup and, you know, fruit, fruit cocktail, powdered eggs, glowing blocks of orange cheese. You know what I'm talking about. And I open up those cans and I'm very detail oriented. If you look in my purse, you know, things are in zipper pouches. My kitchen's labeled. I am squared away because it's good for me. I do really well in that coat that ties in the back. And, um, I, uh, I make these rock piles with all this fruit, and I'm sitting on the well, and I'm waiting for a bear, and I'm waiting for a bear. My grandmother lives on uh, in the eastern front of the Rocky Mountains. I mean, I am raised in absolutely glory, and I'm waiting for a bear, and I'm waiting for a bear. And my, I can remember the story later being told, what is she doing out there? And my grandma said, nobody's bleeding, nothing's on fire, leave her alone. <laughs> 
And so I just sat there. And now, unbeknownst to me, there's a truck ripping through the drive. My Uncle Huey comes flying out the back porch with his braids on fire, and he's got a 30-06. My grandmother's screaming in Blackfeet, and there's a silver-tipped grizzly lumbering down the ridge. And I go running, it's my brother bear. You know, I'm tracing this bear, and, you know, the, the ranger comes down because that's who's coming in, and I, you know, I get scolded. I will take the consequence. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be punched. I'm going to get grounded. I don't care because it's going to be worth it. Buckle up. And so we get, I get a talk from the ranger about why we don't feed the bears. <laughs> and I get a Smokey the Bear poster, you know, and <laughs> I got beat to high heaven. Um, but that was the summer of the black bear and the cinnamon bear and the brown bear. I mean, it was a busy summer for me because I tell you what, I got it going on. And so you know that I needed a drink, man, really bad. The first relief I ever got was cutting on myself and burning myself. And it happened by accident, right? Because I love fire and fire water. And so I'm burning straws in my attic one time and accidentally this plastic dripped onto my skin. And I was like, oh, oh. So I have dime-sized scars all over my legs, man, just to get it off of me. Man, everything that is wrong with me, that I'm not enough, I'm not native enough, I'm not pretty enough, my boobs are not big enough, my hair is on and on, I'm not tall enough. Everything that can be wrong with me, back up, leave me alone. And then again, you took my land. So I'm a little pissed. <laughs> I'm a lot pissed, actually. <laughs> and I, w- I will not tell you about my experience at Turner Field this week. Woo, I did not go to jail. Y'all need to know I did not go to jail. Thank you, Jesus. Um, I, uh, so God, I need a drink. And I tell you what, you might have initials after your, na- your name. You may be a doctor. I don't care. We own a bar. My family owns Kip's Beer Garden right outside St. Mary's. And so when you are 10 years old and you are washing cups behind the bar, there's no greater place to be. It was the best time of my life. And I am a smart chick. I am not, like I have friends who would like pour it into mustard and ketchup bottles to smuggle it out. I'm taking the whole bottle and I'm taking a fifth. And I like Everclear. I am drinking Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, and Johnny Walker Red. I'm getting drunk. I don't know about you. If you're decorating your drinks, if you have an umbrella in it, if you had a wine spritzer, I apologize now. Because I'm drinking. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm drinking. I'm guzzling whiskey, and I am the drunken babysitter. I'm the babysitter you paid in a quarter bag in a case. I would come over to your house, and I would clean your house and wash all them sour milk bottles your baby's been eating on all week. And I would vacuum up that carpet with that smoking Hooper vacuum. I smell a burning vacuum belt today, and I'm like, oh, it's like nostalgia, man. You come home at bar 30 with him, and it is on, right? Because I've got 1350, and that's a fifth, and I've got the keys to your car, because we got to go. <laughs> I learned how to drive drunk in a stolen car, so I promise you I know the right shade of green. I know where to go and how to go and when to go. And um, I'm a fighting drunk. I'm not a crying drunk. I'm not the girl that you're going to buy a Valentine. I'm not interested in a Mezpa. If you were going to prom with him, I'm sorry. It was just convenient. He was there. You know, <laughs> I'd come to you out of blackout and be like, whoa, don't even tell me your name. <laughs> it's a little late now. Shoot. I got to go. <laughs> not interested. I am not. I <laughs> promise you, I don't. Don't buy me a Mezpa. Okay. Not happening. Um, but what did happen, fortunately for me, is that my whole life, I believe that I can shape shift. And my mom, if I'm serious, call Marcy right now. She will tell you that when I'm a tiny baby and she's looking for me and she can't find me, you know, she walk into a room, poof, I'd be there. And then she'd go out of her room and she looked for me. There I was again. And I never got busted. I don't have a DUI. I don't have a minor in possession of alcohol. I've got various assault charges. But 
I do not, I've never been busted because I promise you, man, this one time I'm drinking in Helena, Montana, and I am, the cops are coming. You know, it's that place where the guy fresh out of the joint lives with his girlfriend and their baby, right? You know, and we're drinking there, and I've got these two beers, and I'm watching this baby in its crib, and this baby's got snot on its face, and it's crying, and I'm like, man, this is wrong. But we just, you know, we just couldn't stop. And then, you know, there was a cellar. I come from the place where we get to have basements. I think it's very necessary if you drink like me. Because um, you got to have a place to hide. And so this, you know, this time the cops would come. We'd be like, 5-0. And, you know, some lineman or fullback would hold that cellar door. And we'd shoot down the cellar stairs. And it was a good time to hook up with someone if you hadn't done so yet. And um, I made it to the cellar door too late. And I am too light to fight. I'm like maybe 80 pounds with a brick in my pants. And I'm like, oh, my God lights and red and blue and cops and I'm not going to get caught. I am not going to stand in front of my mom because I'm going to get grounded one, you know, hour for every day that I'm late. So, you know, it's going to be like 35 days later and I'm not going to get to come home. Um, so I whipped myself up underneath this ledge and there's a thank you, Idaho, for being our neighboring state. And I took this bag of potatoes and I stuck them all over me. Thank you, potato. Thank you, potato. Man, that cop came in there. There was no one in there but us potatoes. And I tell you what, I have been trees. I have been, I have been all manner of everything because I'm not going to get caught. And what I just started to do is I just started to die a little at a time. You know, it's that place we get to that it wasn't some big colossal thing. I don't have a DUI. Yes, I put your daughter in the hospital. I don't have, you know, any crazy story of anything but the end, like just over and over and over and over and yet again, an end. And I will figure out anything to get you off my back. It is the color of my skin. It is that I'm a girl because that's my first resentment. And my tribe, the boys get to fancy dance without their shirts. And I I think that's discrimination, you know? <laughs> so gratefully, I started, these people started coming. I started getting put in chemical awareness classes because I was very chemically aware and <sighs> I got a lot of things going on <clears throat> at that time. And so I get to, um, I get placed in these classes and they're talking to me about, you know, my people and they're talking to me about, you know, how dangerous this is and on and on and on. I'm like, get over it, whatever. I don't even care. You know, because in 1985, I started shouting at the devil and I shaved my head and had a mohawk and had black eyeliner on and a Metallica metal up your ass shirt on. I was back up. And my poor mom, you know, man, when you're cooking eggs at eight o'clock in the morning and that shows up for breakfast, <laughs> whoa, you know, my mom would be like, baby girl, what's the matter? I'm like, I'm evil. Why didn't you ask to be born? And poor Marcy, you know, and here's my mom powwow drums and sweet grass smoke billowing out of my house. I'm like, oh, will you make it stop? Right? You know, we're going to Indian days and we're going to my grandma's. I'm like, you know, and I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of teepee creeping and I'm a big fan of stick games and I'm a big fan of the heritage and the pride and the absolute. I texted my mother this morning and I said, mom, thank you so much. How proud I am because I tell you what, when I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was a Japanese German woman that carried the message to, of recovery to me. <laughs> and she was old, man. She was like over 40. And I came to that meeting. I came to that meeting and that woman was knitting with a hula hoop, right? And I came to that meeting. There's smoke billowing everywhere and there was a guy with bifocals on. There was some guy who didn't have, yeah, he was pushing his teeth in and out of his mouth. I was quite intrigued by that. And there's another woman who didn't have her kids and boo-hoo, the state had taken her kids. And then they said, do you want what we have? <laughs> oh my God, no. Thank you very much. I do not. But it's a generous offer. I gotta go. And I sat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for months. <sighs> Because I'm here for alcohol only. <laughs> and they would say to me, Jeanette, we believe that we use the Southern California definition of clean and sober. We believe that you should be, you know, we refrain from anything that affects your family. I'm like, this is native. This is my pipe. <laughs> They'd be like, stop smoking pot. 
Okay, and I'd sit in the meetings and I'd punch myself and I'd be like, God, I hated all of you. If you owned land, if you had a checkbook, if you had a credit card when you got sober, you're pathetic. Okay, because what kind of an alcoholic can sober with a credit card? Seriously. The state of Montana would not let me drive. I was 16 years old when I got sober, and I came to you people, just a menace. And what has happened, folks, is a wholesale miracle has taken place. I'm a student of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I sat in that room, and I sat with that woman, and she took me through that book a page at a time, and she explained to me the grave nature of alcoholism. She explained to me that it went far beyond the color of my skin. And that someday I would be uniquely useful to to my people, but that it had nothing to do to separate me because my whole life I am different and every single one of us different, worse. And now we can do all kinds of things to change ourselves. There's more options than I really need to have. So I just tell you that knowing what is wrong with me today and knowing what I have to do to make me right is the most important thing I have to tell you, that I am sober since August the 28th of 1988, that I have a solution that I absolutely champion. I am militant, people. I am, I am quite, I am, and the, the, there's a couple of women that I don't sponsor, but I sponsor their sponsors who stayed in the room. And so I will tell you, and, they, and they, with, my, with my grace, I'm delighted they're here, I will tell you that everybody in every direction of my life is intact. Everybody, the kids are all right, right? We are sober. We are productive. We are useful. We are here with all of you enjoying a life that we do not deserve, but I fight for every day. I promise you that I have been saved from a fate worse than death. I kissed a cute boy in Alcoholics Anonymous um, against sponsored direction. Um, I do not recommend that. I think that you should make your men's and youth birth control, Um, but that is another meeting and another time. Uh, because what happened on July the 21st when that very cute boy and I had our first date, <laughs> April the 22nd, we had our first baby. <clears throat> and um, true story, boop, 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 nine months to the day. And um, he had a sponsor. He had a home group. He had a commitment. He was a coffee maker. They wouldn't like let me make the coffee because I would talk about dropping acid in the coffee pot, man. Bottom of the hour, woo, watching you guys spark. You people need to chill. Well, he was a coffee maker. And I assure you that I did not realize he did not have a sobriety date. Oops. Um, so when my sponsor was done wanting to beat the crap out of me, um, and we had made a baby, you know, we made a commitment. It was like, where are we going to go and what are we going to do? And I promise you that my, <laughs> the last 23 years of this poor kid's life, you know, the disaster has been because he made a commitment and he followed through and he followed up. And what we have built is an absolute legacy of love. We have, we popped out a couple more kids and, um, you know, cause I'm a big fan of that. And, um, we, uh, he was drunk and I was sober and alcoholics anonymous and I powerhouse. I did everything you people told me to do where you told me to do it when you told me to do it. I have nothing else but the result and the evidence of this solution in my life that I'm sitting in a meeting when I'm 11 years sober and it's a panel on, um, Native American and I'm sitting in the meeting going, I wonder if you have to be native to share in this meeting. And then I go. Stupid you are. And I'm like, oh, that's right. Because again, I was different. I was wrong. I was dirty. And it is my, my, one of my most powerful attributes. What am I? Because I am the exception. I am not the rule. I am the exception. 
the fact that I am long time sober and that I stand in front of you fully clothed is amazing. <laughs> amazing. And being able to have this, you know, to have this experience and to build a marriage and everything in my life that never happened. I'm the only one of my mom's kids who graduated high school. I'm the only one who graduated college. I'm the only one who went on to graduate school. And not through any fault of their own because they are amazing, incredible people. I love my siblings so much. I asked my grandma one time, why did she have so many kids? And she said, because someday when I left this earth, they were only going to have each other. And I'm so grateful for my brothers and my sister and the legacy of getting to love them and cherish them, you know, where we are in our lives. And we've just had a hullabaloo, man. But the most important thing I'm going to tell you in the last couple minutes is that, you know, I came to you people without an idea of what was wrong with me and convinced that it was your fault. And I stand here today with such a solution. The 12th step of Alcoholics Anonymous, as it was originally written, and I absolutely love, you know, our co-founders in their, in their just brilliance that we carry this message to others, especially alcoholics. It wasn't just to alcoholics. I believe in the singleness of purpose, but I carry this message to others. There are people in my life today who need to see the solution that are outside the rooms. There are people in this life that I need to be a calling card. I need to be the evidence that you can live this way. It's not just for us. You know, it was one of the greatest thing that I have to tell you is, oh my God, if you do not believe in a God bigger than you and you can deny his evidence everywhere, you cannot deny his existence in my life. Because I know today my charge that if I fail to bring you that peace and that presence just by being with you, then I have not done my job. And, and that is something that I absolutely cherish. You know, Jason and I popped out a couple more kids, and we've raised our kids in Alcoholics Anonymous. And a few years ago, you know, we always pray with our kids because I don't know what to do with them, right? So what I did, I'm like, hey, you got to brush your teeth, and you got to get vitamins, and, man, you got to take into the – there's a lot of work. I don't know if you know this. Because, man, when they, when they gave us the baby to take home, I was like, and when you take the baby home, I'm like – we're not taking the baby home. Are you crazy? It's on video. I'm like, you people are crazy if you're going to send that baby home with me. So the good news is, is that um, a good sponsorship and a great home group <laughs> will teach you how to make baby food. Um, and so I, uh, I, we started going to churches to find a way of life and to find a faith for our kids. And we ended up at the church of our father. And, um, you know, for a long time, I had a screaming resentment at the Catholic church. And what ended up happening is we went all in, you know, just like we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. We sit in the front row and we be on time. And, you know, my kid came home from um, youth group one night and he said, Mom, I need you to pray for my wife. And I was like, OK, what's your name? We have acquired a target. And he's like, I don't know. But someday I'm going to be married and someday I'm going to, um, I'm going to need to recognize her and know that she has felt God's love. And I'm like, dude, I can do that. So we're praying for his wife. And then we go to Calvin's room. We're like, all right, Calvin, we're going to pray for your wife. And Calvin's like, yes, we, well, she has to like the X-Men. She has to be really good at climbing trees, you know. Um, she's got to let me live by my mommy. I'm like, yeah, she does. Um, and then, uh, and then we go into Maya's room, you know, God saw fit to allow me to give birth to a woman on the freest country and happy 4th of July. And I will tell you for the veterans in the room, I owe you this day. Um, my, um, my daughter, I said to her, I said, okay, Maya, we're going to pray for your husband. And she's like, okay. And so, you know, we're doing the rounds and she's like, she prays that he is funny and she prays that he is a good worker. And then she said, I pray like that he's like my daddy. And I promise you that you people have made him a man worthy of that little girl's prayer. And I, his devoted wife, 
I never know how to thank you for that. I promise you that this is not what was supposed to happen to me. I am so blessed to get to take my mom to powwows, and I send her sweetgrass, and I send her tribal drums, and I do everything. I bring her beadwork every time I come home because it heals that woman's heart. And I promise you also that if you do what I've done in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, you too will get to be free from yourself and from your minds, and most importantly, from the obsession to drink. I haven't had a drink in a very long time, man, and that freaks me out. But more importantly, um, we get to be here together in this day, and I cannot thank you enough for standing in line and for being here because you, I promise you, this is a dream I never knew I had. I never knew that I wanted to do this. I've been waiting my, I woke up this morning, I said, I've been waiting my whole life to do this and I didn't even know it. So I hope that magic for you and I love you and I thank you. Our next speaker is White Eagle M. from Alberta, Canada. My name is Rick McKay, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm going to really pretend I know what I'm saying here. And if I put this drink down, I don't want you to touch it. I hear you used to drink a little bit. <laughs> My sobriety date is March 20th, 1981. And I'm from, uh, originally from Manitoba, but I'm here and very proud to be with my friends from Edmonton. I belong to the Big Book Group. They have a longer version. Of, so, you know, my memory's not that good, so I just slash Big Book Group. They meet on Monday nights and Thursday nights. And uh, I have to tell you, if you want to be punished with love, do not go to that group. <laughs> There's some uh, guys here I just want to say hello to. and Ernie from Winnipeg. Nice you can make it, Ernie. The big Jose and his family from Mexico. The firemen from the Lower Mainland. Mr. Jambi, the world very modestly wouldn't put his credentials yesterday, so I'll say it for you. An international artist from Alberta. And, uh, you know, uh, just to show you, I don't, I don't, uh, don't be surprised, but I'm a native. <laughs> and, uh, along the way, I've been privileged to be, uh, found myself in the presence of people that knew something about what it is to be an Aboriginal person from Canada. And they advised me that, uh, quite possibly that I have a problem with delusion. And they asked me, he said, uh, they said, uh, at this time, they said, Rick, why is it that you go by your Christian name? And I said, well, that's the only name I was given. And they uh, pointed out to me that as far as we're concerned, we're looking at a, a native person here. I said, no shit. 
I said, that's news to me. But I'm not here because I'm native. I'm not at the podium because I'm native. I'm at the podium because I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. Unless I forget that. Unless I forget that. You see, alcoholism has no respect for race, color, or creed. Correct? Though I hear, Larry says not to preach to the choir, but can I hear the choir? Say that again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I wanted to come here and uh, be the guy that will represent the Lone Ranger. <laughs> now, just, just a minute here now. I'll get to being a native soon. But when I grew up, as a previous speaker, a little intense, this girl, I think. (laughs) I know, she was spitting those girls out pretty good there, I thought, for a while. And uh, incidentally, I just wanted to say that uh, welcome to the front row here, and welcome to the women in the meeting. I have... uh, Last count, I had I have six daughters, and uh, needless to say, someone asked me, "What clan do you come from?" I said, "The rabbit clan." <laughs> we wanted to be just like Uncle Jack. <laughs> Uncle Peter. I have uh, eight brothers and four sisters. My uh, my uncle had eight sis- eight daughters and one son. They they grew in packs, you see, twelve packs. <laughs> So I was destined to be here, almost from the beginning. You know, uh, and thank you all for coming, because you are as equal here as you are out there. And let me tell you how much I love you. See, the only divider I got is between my ears. Correct? I might break out in the, into a different kind of talk if you keep that up. <laughs> I'm also a son, a brother, an alcoholic, and more importantly, I'm one of God's kids. Unless I forget that. Unless you forget that. Unless you know that. That being the only problem that I got. Really, if you read the big book, you know that one there, that, where was it? Oh, there it is. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) This book here, I was not a big fan of. Because when you're playing God, why would you be interested in somebody else's way? 
So I'm going to tell you that uh, I have had a few problems. But as big as alcoholism was a problem to me, I had a bigger obstacle. And they call it self-centeredness. That being the root of the problem. The root. If alcoholism is a symptom, why am I just going to meetings just to stay sober? If that is not my primary problem. problem. And yet, everywhere I go, you know, I get, I've been fortunate to be here for a while. And uh, I'll try to remember to keep my preaching down to a minimum. But you know, one of the things that comes with time, that I'm not a kid anymore. You see? I'm not a kid anymore. I'm a man. And I get to stand up in meetings. You can ask those guys in my group. And even that oddball there from Winnipeg there, Phil. <laughs> that I, I get up in a meeting and I tell these young guys that if God's your problem, and alcohol will, will have to be your answer. Because you cannot stay here and stay as you are. It's a divine impossibility to me. That being so. Because the answer is that why do we go to AA for then? If alcohol is our problem. Primary problem. But as my friend Larry says, I'm not here because I drank too much juice. And yet alcohol for a period of time was an answer to me. At the ripe old age of uh, 10 years old, I was drinking from my father's lap. But as much as I can say that, that doesn't, I'm not going to say that I'm an alcoholic because my father gave me my first drink or anything else. So I'm just going to tell you that to save me a little bit of time because I want to get to the good stuff. I want to talk about a power greater in myself and how I came to believe. So I'll just sort of say, sort of clap it and say that, uh, you know, that I'm an alcoholic. There doesn't need to be a have to be a reason why, except the fact that I'm powerless over alcohol. You know, one of the things that I find that uh, there's those of us who sit in meetings and refrain from making a decision. They turn their life and will it over their lives to the care of God as they understand Him. And there's more debating going on in Alcoholics Anonymous than there is action. I was at a meeting the other day and I've seen three grown men cry. Cry in a meeting. Usually, once in a while, you might hear one. But there was three in a meeting. One of them forgot who he was. You see, when you forget who you are, you have to find an answer. Especially when you're in charge of your own life. So when I came to AA at the ripe old age of 21, 
you know, uh, I, uh, I had a lot of problems. Problems that persisted into sobriety. I was crazier than a loon. And I thought I was sober because I was attending meetings. I was going to 999 meetings a month. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm going to sort of make a few statements. My friend asked if there's any newcomers here. There was a few hands that went up. But I'm going to ask, is there anybody hurting in the meeting? That's what makes you, that's what makes you a newcomer. Not the length of who you, where you are. Sorry. That's where you meet as a newcomer. So if you're sitting here with 5, 10, 15 years and you're hurting and you're lost and you're confused, you're at the same place where a newcomer is in two or three days. That's where I was. That's why I know that. And that's why I say what I say. If talking was all there was to it, many of us would be in heaven already, would we not? <laughs> Sounds overly simple, some of the stuff I'm saying. But I don't think God's got a computer up there. Or does he? Or am I missing something? Because I don't think so. Not the God that I understand. You see, the only thing that he knows is that you've got a heart. I'm more interested in finding out people that got a heart. I had a kid working with me one day. And I asked, what nationality are you? Oh, he said, I'm a white guy. <laughs> and being very observant, I said, no, really. I said, what color is your blood? Well, I said, it's the same as yours. Well, I said, you know, at the end of the day, talk is cheap in this society. Talk is cheap. You know, when I was, uh, the profundity of the 12, 12 steps to me was that uh, all I had to be was in this guy's vicinity or people like him. And the obsession for alcohol left. It's not the same for everybody. I know we're supposed to take the steps and that happened. But in my case, the truth of my admitting when I was that 21-year-old was enough for me to get in the door. But this thing coming to believe in a power greater than myself was the elusive elixir that I was missing when I began my walk and thereafter. And why I was stumbling all over the place in Alcoholics Anonymous like a drunk man, sober. Sober. And every once in a while, you know, to keep up my rabbit heritage, I'd have a child somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, I was so unfit, they would have, uh, I was negligent as a father. And I can remember, and please bear with me if I, if I slobber through one of these kind of statements, but 
I have a daughter who's got cancer back home. And uh, <clears throat> one of her sisters graduated with, that's her third degree, she's 27 years old, 28 years old. And I remind her that that's from her dad, she gets all that proudness. <laughs> and she, she was supposed to be here. And she said, my goodness, I'm there in five minutes, I better scratch that story. Uh, she said, Dad, I can't go, but I have, to, I have to look after my sister. And that little girl was, uh, when that little girl was, uh, the educated one was, uh, six years old. I had to leave that family. And she came running downstairs and she said, Daddy, where are you going? In the middle of the night. She said, My girl, I gotta go. Because my home was, Rampant with untreated alcoholism. Rampant. I didn't know what the term was at the time. And she said, uh, how will you know where I am? And thinking that I was, uh, I had to get this inspiration. And I said, my girl, when you think of daddy, where is it that you feel him? She pointed to her heart. And I said, that's where I'll be when you need me. And, uh, but that repeated itself numerous times. My brothers and I, to make restitution for my mother, we formed a softball team. We traveled North America. I have two sons. I have a son playing hockey in California somewhere. I have a son who is a musician. I have a couple of girls that are... I have a daughter who is an artist, Mr. Alec. And I taught some of these kids how to pray. After a while, they said, uh, Dad, do we have to pray anymore? Because, you see, the thing is, the magic is that you just touch my leg, but don't get carried away when it's time for me to go. <laughs> I just want to say, uh, as I wind this up, that uh, needless to say, I'm pretty serious about this stuff, you know, because when you watch people die, when you watch them struggle, they have a lot of trouble with this spiritual thing, but I just want to just sort of close with this. When I was a kid, my father had horses, and we used to lead these horses out. With deep curiosity, curiosity, when the one this one particular horse came back, he had braids in his hair. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me when I was a kid, why would that horse have braids? I mean, it was out in the wilderness, comes back, and somebody sat there in the wilderness and braided his hair. And I, uh, I watched the farmers. I watched the farmers that grow their wheat and stuff. They don't debate about what's going in the ground. They just plant and they prepare. You see? 
And uh, as I got older in AA is that it's the action that you take that brings about the relationship with the power and nothing else will. So I spend my time trying to help the young people. I'm 56, a young 56 as it is. Single for those. <laughs> as Mrs. V would say, leave, her, leave my mother, leave my mother out of it. But I, I love you people. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what shape you come in, what color you are. Because I believe that for me, am I done? You got a half hour yet? <laughs> you see, it's, it's not, it's what I think that holds us egocentric in place. And it's, it's the lack of inventory. It's a lack of taking these defects of character and doing something with them. The good book says if you knock, you get an answer. And you know, to reclaim one's identity, you know, Canada, they're killing our women. 1,800 plus. I'm getting there. And you know, I have eight daughters, six daughters. And I honor the women. There was a guy in a meeting the other day that was calling his wife the bee. And uh, I have a little trouble controlling my temper when I hear that kind of stuff. Because you're not that to me. And so I want to close by saying that uh, I just want to read something just quickly. In case I never got around to saying it. This is what I was trying to say. I have it, uh, I have these two daughters picture right on this. I just wanted to say this. If I missed it, if you missed it. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. You will surely meet some of us as we trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you. Miigwech. Next, we have Hawk R. from Gloversville, New York. I'm Hawk, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, my sobriety date is November 30th, 1965. I should say our sobriety date, because I didn't, nor could I do it alone. I was sitting up here listening, and I finally figured out why we have global warming. You know? I'm counting the children here, and I had seven, so, you know, the overpopulation, you know. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for being here. 
because it's it's everybody that took up a seat in, in Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, is the reason that I stand before you. You know, I got the uh, I got the letter, and uh, it asked about speaking on the panel for for Native. Can you hear me now? Okay. For uh, on Native Americans in Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I hadn't thought about it much. But, you know, it's, it's a big part of my story. Uh, I was raised on the Cheyenne River Reservation out in South Dakota. My father was full-blooded Lakota. My mother was half Nez Pierce and, and half a, a whole mixture of Caucasian there. And, uh, and life was good. I didn't have the problems on the res, but I remember I think I was four years old. And I'm not going to be politically correct, by the way, because there's just certain things. And it's, 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 it's just the way that it was. And it's how it affected me. And uh, we went into Rapid City. And we were there. And, and, and all of a sudden, there were some people pointing at us. <laughs> and I heard Dirty Rotten Indian. And then somebody else was pointing at us, and I heard Prairie Nigger. And uh, I, I didn't know what that meant. And uh, when we got back, I, I asked my grandfather, and he said, Oh, that's a hateful word that's used by ignorant people. But when I look back, that was the first thing that really started to affect my life. That was the first ism. Because I decided from that point that I had to show everyone that I wasn't that dirty, rotten Indian. Not just that I was as good as you, but that I was better. And also in there somewhere, there was, there was just a lot of rage. You know, at six years old, uh, what happened was my father had been over in Europe fighting World War II. I was raised primarily by my, my, my grandparents and my uncles. And, uh, and he didn't come back. He didn't get killed. He just didn't come back. And uh, my mother figured he was out there selling his wild oats. And uh, so she wanted nothing more to do with Indians. So she picked me up at six years old and, uh, and took me to Connecticut. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And uh, and they took me down to kindergarten, and I spoke very, very little English, and I had braids. And we all know what happened. You know, kids can be kids can be very, very cruel. And uh, I ran home, crying, and I cut my braids. And I looked in the mirror, and I said, they'll never make me cry again. And that just kind of added up to, to all of that. So I spent most of my youth, uh, I had all these different fears. I was afraid of people. You know who I was? You wouldn't like me. I was a dirty, rotten little Indian. I wasn't as good as. I was, I didn't fit. I didn't fit anywhere, and... Uh, so my answer to things was my fists. That was my rage, you know. It just, I could beat you into submission and you'd leave me alone. Or you would know that I beat somebody into submission and, and you would leave me alone. And oddly with my story and when it comes to the alcohol, it's almost as if it made me mellow because I had very, very little of it happen, I think. I don't know because I was a blackout drinker. And people used to tell me. You know what you did? No, what did I do? And then after a while, I was, no, and I don't want to know. 
but no real jackpots. Uh, and then I was, I don't know, I was 11 years old. And I was down at, at counseling, and they asked me to wait outside where they talked to my mother, and this kid came down. He was eight or nine years old, and for no reason, I jumped him, and I beat him, and I left him for dead. And a couple of weeks later, they figured out who it was, and uh, and, and again, I got lucky because I just ended up with more counseling. So a lot of the stuff never ended up on my record. I think I was about 10, uh, no, maybe 13, when I really had that first drink, you know. I remember we were at a dance. And they had girls. And, uh, you know, I knew if I asked any of them, they'd say no. And I wasn't really sure if I wanted to dance with girls anyway. But, uh, you know, somebody had a little bottle of old factory whistle, you know, a couple of shots of that, and you were off on a toot. And, uh, and we shared it. And, lo, I could dance. And I could puke. <laughs> That's what I did. I asked the girl to dance, and she said, yeah, and I danced with her, went over, sat down, I puked all over <laughs> And then I don't remember anything that happened after that. But uh, the rage was always there, you know. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and uh, and I was lost. I had been taken away from a world that I was used to, a world that was gentle, a world that was patient. And here I was, thrust into this where everything was all of a sudden, even back then, in a hurry and everything else. And I lost my way spiritually, you know. And uh, and again, the fish got me in trouble. I was 17 years old, and something happened. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was about, but it came out of a blackout. And this was a rage blackout. It had nothing to do with the drinking. And uh, I was up on top of some guy, and just banging his head down into the concrete, uh, enough to mush his skull up. So I ended up going to court, and they were trying to decide, first of all, if they were going to try me as a, as a youngster or as an adult. And the state's attorney happened to be a friend of the family, and he said, you know, he's a good boy, he just needs some straightening out, so maybe if he joins the service. And and judge said, well, son, what would you like to do? Would you like to join the service, or would you like to go to jail? Man, I was a little shy on my 18th birthday. It was that was in December. My my birthday was January 15th. You know, Martin Luther King Day, and uh, it wasn't then when I was born. But so you know, I thought about that for probably about 10 seconds, and and I said I'll go in the service. So they told me I had until my my birthday. So again, I got out there and I said, okay, you know, here I am now, so what am I going to do? i got to be this tough guy, so I'm going to join the Marines. And a friend of mine said, oh, no, they're not the tough guys. I said, you got to look at these frogmen. And so I did, and they were the tough guys. And uh, I went out, I, I joined the Navy, I went to Great Lakes, and, and then I became a frogman, and then later on through an act of John F. Kennedy, uh, they created a special warfare unit under the auspices of the United States Navy, and they created the special force for Vietnam that was called the SEALs. So I was a second class out of Coronado, and, uh, and I was off to Vietnam. And again, the only real thing, I mean, you know, you drink when you're in the service, you drink and you do all this stuff and all this crazy stuff, and it's kind of accepted. Uh, and nothing really bad happened except I got thrown out of jail in San Diego, California. (laughs) 
might have been some thought, you know, there that maybe something was a little funny because that doesn't happen. I don't mean I don't mean I went to court and got thrown out. I mean the police threw me out and told me not to come back. And so I was off to uh, I was off to Vietnam, well, Southeast Asia, parts of that. I was one of them advisors, you know, non-combatants. Uh, and then later on, things intensified. And what actually got me to Alcoholics Anonymous was I came out of a blackout. We were on a mission. My job was to cover our withdrawal, and I had absolutely no idea what was going on. And again, nothing bad happened, but... Uh, I made a decision at that point that I wasn't going to drink again. And up until this time, because this dirty, rotten little Indian always accomplished what he was going to do. You know. And two days later, I was sitting on that carrier. I was on an eight-man carrier team that they, they used to run us in. The, well, actually, we were at places that we weren't at, if you know what I mean. But I was sitting there with an eight-ounce tumbler of 190-proof grain alcohol that they used for cleaning the parts there. And uh, I was devastated. That was my moment of desperation, because now I knew two things. Number one, I knew that alcohol had control, and I knew that I couldn't stop on my own. And my mother was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she'd taken me to a couple of meetings two or three years early, you know, kind of check on, see what I'm doing. And, you know, it was a 12-step call, but I didn't know that. And I went to the meeting, and, you know, there were two old guys up there talking at the podium, Nebuchadnezzar and Methuselah. <laughs> and uh, I said, Jesus Christ, you know, if I got that old, and if I was that bad, I'd quit too, you know. Good for them. But, you know, my mother was still sober. Another couple that I knew, Ed and Lucille, had gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, so they knew that it worked. And I said, that's it when I get back, you know, when I, when I get back to shore, I'm, uh, I'm going to go to an AA meeting. So it was about four weeks later, and uh, we made port in Groton, Connecticut, because they like to work us up there. They have the tanks that they use for the, for the submariners, and it would work us in there with, with some stuff. And uh, I went to my first meeting, and it was a speaker meeting, Mystic Monday night. And see, I knew. I knew when I got there, they were just going to hover. And I didn't want anybody to hover. So I had my dress blues. And uh, for anybody that doesn't know, the Trident or the Budweiser, that's the largest insignia in the Navy. So it was, I'm going to show up at this meeting. I'm a seal. I kill people. Stay away. <laughs> So I got to the meeting. I walked in. Guy making coffee. He says, you knew? I said, yeah, I'm in the Navy. He said, well, I figured that from the uniform. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm a SEAL. He said, well, that's nice, son. He says, why don't you just take the cotton out of ears, put it in your mouth, and sit up front there and don't look at the broads. And there was also, there was, a, there was a chief at that meeting, chief petty officer at that meeting that, that night and suggested that, you know, I wear civvies from now on. Uh, you have to understand, before Betty Ford, alcoholism was a completely different thing, and especially in the service. But uh, 
they come up to me after that, and uh, they, they looked at me, and they said, well, Methuselah came up, because he told me I had a sponsor, and him was it. <laughs> and, and then they said, we're going to make you the chairman of this group. And I said, wow, they recognize talent, you know, when they see it. <laughs> so they gave me a key. They told me to get there two hours early next week and uh, put on two 100-cup pots of coffee and set up the chairs. 150 chairs, and they suggested that I start the coffee before I start putting the chairs up so that the coffee would be done in the time. And, uh, and that became my home group. You know, uh, It was a speaker group, so we went out twice a week. We would go off to these different places, and I'd be in the back seat, and I'd have you know, a guy on this side of me, been sober since Moby Dick was a guppy. <laughs> I had a guy over here that was Captain Ahab's great-grandfather. <laughs> And that was the message that I got. And it's funny, it wasn't. See, they told me, don't worry about the steps, kid, because the steps are simple. We're going to give you a four-step program. And it used to piss me off because they kept calling me kid. I killed people for a living. They're calling me kid. And I should say at that first meeting, I was 23 years old. The next youngest person was 61. (laughs) Yeah, geezers, you know. What the hell have I got myself into? But, uh, you know, I remember I, I got down there, and the first thing I said was, because, you know, I hadn't been doing anything. With, I, I tried a bunch of different religions and the whole thing when I was younger, and it was just, hey, it wasn't for me or anything else. And, of course, I wasn't around a native community. And I told my sponsor, I said, well, I'm confused about this God thing. He said, well, don't be, because all you need to know is you ain't in. <laughs> and then he said, have you ever seen one of those pictures from outer space? And I said, yeah. And he said, did you notice it doesn't revolve around you? <laughs> so that's kind of the way it was. And that four-step program was, you know, hang on, let go, wants and needs. If it's a want, ha- if it's a want, let go. If it's a need, hang on. And uh, you don't really know the difference. That's what you got us for. So basically, what happened? We did we did six months, and then six months. I did uh, I did a total eight combat tours. So now I'm going to be over in the jungle for six months, and they hooked me up with a pen pal. It was called Lonas International. And I had a lighthouse keeper out in New Zealand. Okay? And his name was Ian Fleming. No relation. (laughs) But that was my contact. That was my contact with Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and I'm thinking now we talk about the Internet and the social media and just how much different all that would be. So... You know, my drinking, uh, I would, had never really, as far as I've had, thought was the problem. But I got here and I said, if I just don't drink and I come here, because that's what they told me, you know, you're 24 hours, that's all you got to do. You don't have to stop the rest of your life. Don't drink, come to meetings and blah, 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 blah. And that's what I did for a long, long time. Uh, but some things happened. So now I've got six children and a wife. <laughs> And uh, two days back from leave, on leave, I, I, I pulled up to the house, and it was on fire. And I went in, and I got two out, and then I got one out, and then I went to go back in, and they grabbed me, the police and the firemen, and grabbed me, and they wouldn't let me go. If, if I had, I would have died. I was standing there cursing God, and what had happened was the thing had gone off over the scanner, and people from Alcoholics Anonymous had heard about it. 
And there was a woman there from Alcoholics Anonymous, and she came up there, and she grabbed me, and she hugged me, and she didn't tell me it was going to be okay. What she said was, we'll get through this. And I didn't have to drink. And I'm just going to cut a couple of things. I ended up at, at 30 years sober doing a walkabout. I hiked from Whitewood, South Dakota, to Kings Canyon, Sequoia National Park. It was a 2,700-mile fourth step because I still had the big black hole. And I had been sober for a long time. And like he said, if you're not following this program, you did that. And what I realized there was that everything they had told me at all these meetings was true, that it applied to all of us. And the person that went in there was a completely different person that they came out of there. I had, uh, I had gone back to the reservation. I had hooked up with... I'd hooked up with a bunch of the elders and everything else. And, and what happened was I got back involved in the Native community, and that helped. But I really want to talk about the healing power of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm going to close with this last story. I got a call one day that my 17-year-old daughter had been run down and killed by a drunk driver. And... Uh, they had lived, they lived a few towns away from us. And then someone called me and said, he's going to AA. And he'd never gotten in trouble before. And this was it. Do you want to come down? And I said, no. But I happened to be working in Rockville Hospital and dealing with Al Anon people and telling them, you know, you blame the disease and not the alcoholic. So I thought maybe I better go down there. And when I did, I called Lil up and I told her I was coming down. As I got to that room, and started down, I saw her across there with a guy, and as he came across the floor, I looked into his eyes. And if it was possible for anybody to feel more pain than me, it was him. And I ended up and I embraced that man. His name is Tom. I ended up going to court for him. And as a result of that, he got no time. And I spoke at his first anniversary. The man is still sober today. That was God working in my life and taking away that anger. And I haven't felt rage since then. You know, I just like to say, I keep saying I stand here and I, and I keep saying it can't get better. But it does. And I think part of that is, I'm not going to go up, but I've been involved in service in Alcoholics Anonymous at the District of the Area level for 35 years. Because for what I've been given today, what's that worth? You know, what's that worth? Because this is what we do. I'd like to thank you all for being here and helping me to stay sober today. Thank you. Lester, I've been an alcoholic. Uh, in the email I was given, I was told if there was a little bit of time left, I'd be able to share. So I'm going to share just a little bit about where I come from. Um, thank you, guys. You know, what I heard today was family. Um, I grew up on a reservation. I didn't have a real relationship with my dad. 
My dad died when I was 12. Um, baby of the family, I have an older brother. Uh, the only thing I knew was mom. It's the only thing I knew was mom because mom provided for me. You know, my story is just like anybody else's. You know, I'm not a son. You know, I don't know how to be a son. I don't know how to treat people. But, man, you give me a drink, and, man, that sense of ease and comfort that comes with that first drink. You know, my last debacle with alcohol. Um, I received a call on, on, on May 12th at 6 o'clock in the morning. You know, they asked for me by name, and they said, we're sorry. You know, we tried working on her for 20 minutes, and we couldn't revive her. Now is the day I lost my best friend. <clears throat> that was my mom. That's when I turned my back on God, and alcohol became the only thing I knew to know how to live. You know, and I became that person. My story isn't any different. I ended up in jail. I ended up in institutions. I ended up on the street. You know, I ended up absolutely hopeless. When I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I wanted to die. Every time I got drunk, I asked God, please don't let me wake up this time. Three suicide attempts, and I'm still here. I remember sitting down with my sponsor, and he asked me, he said, do you believe your higher power has a plan for you after all you've been through? And I couldn't argue with him. In my early sobriety, there was a time where the drink was going to solve everything for me. And he gave me a choice. He said, you know, Lester, you're right here. He goes, if you want to drink that bad, he said, get in the car and I'll take you to the bar and I'll buy you your first one. But you hear at a medium of Alcoholics Anonymous, why don't you walk inside and shake some hands and get out of yourself? <sighs> Thank God I took that suggestion. You know, to walk inside and to get out, get out of myself and shake some hands and ask them how they're doing. If you would have told me I have a, I have the life I have today, eight years ago, I would have told you no way. So I am not worthy of it. I am not worthy of it. I've gotten way more than I deserved. If I've gotten what I deserved, I would not be here. You guys gave me a gift, and that gift is to be able to handle life on life's terms. I have a solution today, and I know that no matter whatever happens, I don't have to drink. That brother I was talking about that I mentioned died of this disease three years ago. I got to be a brother to him. I got to make amends to him. I got to show up, and he instilled in me that responsibility, that R word, I showed up, and <clears throat> the doctor, when he left the hospital, said, when you get him home, you'll have about two weeks with him. I left for home on a Wednesday. We sat in his room. He said, I want you to come in with me. He goes, I want you to pick out my casket. I want you to pick out my clothes, and I want you to dress me. That was a Wednesday and a Thursday, and he died on a Friday. He died in my arms in his home. He looked at me and said, little brother, I'm going home today. And you know I didn't have to drink. But I got to pick up the phone and call my sponsor. And he said, Lester, it looks like you get to be of service to his family now, isn't it? 
dirty steps. I remember a sponsor telling me, say, you know, Lester, steps one, two, and three get you in touch with the higher power. Steps four through nine teach you how to live and get right. He said long ago, he said Bill W. was asked to sum up the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in two words. He said in 10, 11, and 12, God willing, you get to live a life of love and service. No, not every day is perfect, and I am not perfect, but it's a lot better than what it used to be. I remember my very first international five years ago in San Antonio, the old timer that took me. He said, you know, just get in the car and come along. You got a front row seat to see what your creator made. And he was right. And he was right. And you know, I was able, <laughs> this time around, I was able to pay it forward. And I was able to bring along a guy that I sponsored who was five months sober. You know, he got to get in the car and come along. And you know, the life I have today, I would have never dreamed it. And it was by taking the simple, some simple suggestions of getting a home group, finding a sponsor, working the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and doing some service work. God has a funny sense of humor because I was not supposed to chair this meeting. You know, I was supposed to chair the 9 o'clock meeting this morning. And my friend Todd called me and said, Lester, are you going to the International because I need your help? He goes, I have, there's a service commitment that I have and I'm not going to be able to make it. And I said, sure, Todd. He said, Lester, I'll call you back in five minutes. He calls me back and he says, yeah, Lester, he said, God sure does have a sense of humor. And he goes, uh, Eva Sanchez um, had asked if I knew a Native American that was going to the International Conference because she needs a chair for the AA Native People's Meetings. He said, I got to get off the phone with you now, Lester. She'll be in touch because I still got to find a replacement for myself. <laughs> it's amazing what it takes just to what happens when you just show up. When you just show up. You know, so today you guys are my family. You guys are my examples of what to do and what not to do. You guys have taught me how to live. There's an old timer in Rapid City in her meetings. And I know she got this from someone else, and I am going to repeat it. But she always closes her talks with this. She goes, thank you, not what, thank you, not for what you have done for me, but for what you have instilled in me to allow me to do that, which I cannot do myself. My name is Lester, and I am an alcoholic. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.